We're going to be looking at Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Josh, over to you. Shall I just pray quickly for you? Um, wonderful. Jesus, thanks so much for this man. Thank you that you love him. And um, Lord, I just pray that your love would kind of ooze out of him as he speaks to us this evening. And Jesus, I thank you so much that part of your love is is challenged to us as well, not for the sake of it, but because that challenge actually brings us into so much more life. And um, just as we've heard that last song, this is what you do, you make us come alive. I thank you that in what we're hearing this evening, it's all part of your call to us to um, become more alive. Let's just bless Josh so much as he speaks to us now and give us ears to hear. Amen. Thank you very much. Uh, for those of you who are visiting or haven't been in the sanctuary for a while, uh, you may not know that we are spending a few months really drilling into this theme of what it looks like to begin to look a lot like Jesus. Uh, so over the summer, we had a great time doing Alpha, and now we are kind of with laser-like focus uh, drilling on into the, the, the person of Jesus that the Gospels present to us and how we can learn to not only admire and be encouraged by that person, but actually step into some of that life to follow him where we are in our own context, in our own time. And so in that view, what I want to talk about tonight is one of the perhaps most, one of the more famous passages of Jesus doing something uh, provocative, strange, uh, slightly inexplicable to those around him. And look at the passage in John 13 when he washes the disciples' feet. So if you've got Bibles uh, by your uh, on your tables, or if you've got a phone app, or if you've got uh, ideally Bible, your own Bible with you, then please do uh, uh, drill into there and find uh, John 13. We're looking at verses 1 to 17, and then we'll also be jumping briefly into Philippians 2 uh, later on to give you the heads up so you're not taken unawares. John 13. Now, before the festival of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas and of Simon Iscariot to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you are you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean after he had washed their feet and put on his robe and returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have set you an example, and you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Let's pray.
God, thank you for creating the world. Thank you for filling it with uh, your life and passion and joy. Thank you that when we rejected that life, uh, you did not leave us alone, uh, but pursued us in the incarnation by coming and dwelling among us. Thank you that you found a way through the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, to bring us back to you, to provide a route back into your life. As we study this passage now, may some of that life uh, be exposed in a fresh way to some of us. May those things that we have perhaps known come alive, and may we know how to do the things that we have known. Amen. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. There's this strange thing going on in this passage between this relationship between knowing stuff and doing it. And if you notice, if you look through the passage, there's a quite a few times where this idea of either Jesus speaks about knowing something or the gospel writer talks about kind of what, what's going on in Jesus' head, Jesus' knowledge. And it seems that when Jesus says that in verse 17, that is both a challenge to the disciples and a challenge to us reading this text to really grab hold of whatever it is we are supposed to know and to allow that to change what we do. Where are we thus far? We are nearing the kind of real business end of John's gospel. Uh, Jesus in Jerusalem uh, we've just had a passage called uh, Summary of Jesus' Teaching. Jesus is beginning to teach about his death. We are approaching the cross with ever-increasing speed. And in that context, Jesus begins to do this. He begins to wash his disciples' feet. And again, the, and there is just this strange connection between the things he knows and the things he do, he does. Knowing, we are told in verse 1, uh, and the first few verses, that all things have been given to him. We're told of his, that he, he, is, he knows that he has come from God and that he's going to God. We are told that he knows his hour is at hand. And all these things lead him to become a servant, to wash his disciples' feet. And that is an odd connection. That is not at all obvious how knowing that God has put all things, uh, given all things to him, knowing that he, is, he has kind of been, been preceded from the Father and is returning to the Father and the life of the Trinity, should then automatically say, well, obviously, if you, if you knew that, if you were Jesus, you would obviously start washing people's feet. So it's, it, it's not at all obvious what's going on here. And it's no wonder that Peter doesn't understand. But the strange thing is, I think, in some ways, that in verse 7, we get this promise from Jesus, but later you will understand. So there seems to be this idea that, yes, what Jesus is doing is strange, and yes, he's almost ex- he, he, he recognizes and expects Peter not to get it, but says something will happen later, that means you, Peter, will understand what's going on. Let's jump forward quickly to Philippians 2, because I think here we get 
a picture of what that how of what that understanding is and how it was reached there. So Philippians two to give you some context, we are in we're going to look at verses five to eleven. Uh, verses six to eleven, we think, uh, is probably a kind of early Christian creed or hymn or song that Paul is quoting. Uh, and if you then take into account that the book of Philippians is one of the earliest parts of the New Testament to be written, it's likely that in verses 6 to 11, we are dealing with uh, some of the earliest understanding from the early church of what they understood Jesus to be like. So this is an embryo. This is the early Christian community wrestling and saying, okay, what, what happened in the life of Jesus? What, what, what did it mean? And this is what they've said. So Paul says, like, say, mind, be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to quote this hymn, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality of God as something to be exploited or taken to his own advantage, but ex- emptied himself, taking the form of a slave or servant, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What happened that meant that Peter and the early Christian community could begin to understand foot washing? I want to suggest the cross happened. That at the, at the cross, the self-giving love that was on display in the foot washing was made so clear and was demonstrated to be uh, efficacious at the resurrection and then, uh, and then through that leading to the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples at Pentecost, all of that provided a context that suddenly made sense of what Jesus was doing. Because the cross was so disruptive, so outside of their expectations, that when they began to get their head around what happened there, suddenly the rest of Jesus' life made sense. So what, so what did they begin to understand was going on there? Well, I want to draw attention to two phrases in, uh, in verse 6 that demonstrate the early church's understanding of what Jesus was doing, what it meant to become, uh, to begin to look a lot like Jesus. So first of all is this idea of equality with God. Uh, it, the Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I think it's something along, it's pronounced kind of isotheo. And the significance of that term is that when you wanted to run to be, it, it, the significance of the term was it was a political term because you need to understand the kind of civic religion in Rome Caesar and so the ruling authorities, you were considered God if you were Caesar. So equality with God was almost a political office. It was something to be achieved. When you wanted to be Caesar, one of the first things you did was you set up a little kind of temple shrine to yourself and try to get people to worship you. Second phrase is kind of te- con- uh, is the one something to be exploited or something to be used to your own advantage. Greek word there is halpagmon. 
And again, that is what that is what you would do if you wanted to be Isotheo, if you wanted to have a quality of God. It's basically kind of political scheming and competing with people and plotting and all the associated phrases that, in, in the contemporary phrase, people would imagine the kind of political murder and, and all sorts of stuff that happened in Roman politics. But the early church has very quickly identified that what Jesus did was he rejected that. So he said that, yes, he was truly God, but he did not consider equality of God, this political phrase, Easter Theo, to be something to be used to his own advantage, but instead took the form of a servant. So let's flick back to John 13, because I think this, again, this then makes sense of what, what we read in the beginning of John 13, because we can see that same understanding that is articulated in the, by the early church in Philippians 2, articulated by the gospel writer in the first few verses. Because he, again, he, he contextualizes and, and grounds this act of service in the deep knowledge that Jesus has of his status in relation to the Father. And so he's able, so the gospel writer having, if, if you believe it's John the beloved disciple, if you believe it's someone else, but certainly, whatever, but he is able to, as a result of after the cross, look back and interpret the life of Jesus by way of the cross. And so he's, so he's able to understand that it's out of that very understanding of who Je- how Jesus understood himself that he then washed the disciples' feet. And then we begin to understand that part of what Peter is objecting to when he tries to, when Jesus goes to wash his feet, is that Jesus is revealing himself to not be the Messiah that Peter wanted. Because even after all those years that Peter spent with him, Peter still expected Jesus to look like Caesar. And Jesus disappoints that expectation. And I wonder that I wonder if if you've been in those situations. I don't I don't know if you've been Christian for a long time. I don't know uh, how long if you even say that you would know Jesus. But after all these years, are there times where you say, "Jesus, I wasn't expecting you to look like that. I wanted you to be more domineering. I wanted you to demand something of me." Stop trying to serve me. And on reflection, I think part of this is that part of the reason why we perhaps want a God, or Peter wanted a God that was domineering and uh, wanted him to serve that God, is that Caesar needs people. Caesar dominates because he needs others to do things for him. But as soon as Jesus starts to serve you, you realize that actually Jesus doesn't need anything from you. And you have to accept that you are, in some way, unnecessary to his plans. He doesn't need you. He wants you. He loves you. And that is marvelous. But to fully appreciate the magnitude of that love, you need to first grasp the fact that God doesn't need you. 
Only then can you begin to embrace this alternative ethic, this alternative way of life that is not about competition, that is not about dominance, that is not about uh, people amassing power for their own benefit, but is about service, is about giving of themselves. Because Jesus is coming out of this, this dynamic intimacy of the Godhead, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are in this kinti- who since the beginning of time and before that have been in this dynamic self-giving of themselves to each other. And what the incarnation is, and, and what we see in this passage, is that self-giving love that we see in the Trinity projected onto a fallen world and manifesting in beautiful ways and moments of profound beauty, but moments also that clash against the way the world works, the way we understand the world to work, where people compete and people have to win. But Jesus, despite uh, the cost of demonstrating that alternative way, still chooses to wash his disciples' feet, still invites them to live in that life that God offers. So let's return to that challenge in verse 17, where Jesus says to the disciples, where Jesus says to us, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. What are those things? Well, I think there are two answers to that question. What are the things that we are to know? First of all, in the text, it's what he explains to the disciples. So he says that, as I've washed your feet, uh, go and wash others. Uh, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. And all through that, if you look at kind of those, those verses from 13 to 16, he is teaching them a new way of what it is to relate to a master, what it is to relate to a Lord. And that he is calling them to worship and follow someone who doesn't need them, but wants them. But I think also that the way that, the way that perhaps... There is another way that as the people reading this text, we are to perhaps interpret those words. And and I think it's significant that the gospel writer chooses to put the first few verses uh, in it, kind of the start of this passage, with that description of what Jesus knows. Where he says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Later on, he says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. So that other thing that we are meant to know is that bigger story. The story of God's love for God. The story of, yes, the cross and the way in which God doesn't need us, needs us, but chooses to pursue us, chooses to win us uh, through the death of the Son. So we are asked to know these things, and then we are asked to do them. Why is it that we struggle with the doing? I've been reflecting 
a lot in, in my own life and, and, and noticing it uh, kind of as, as a wider way that uh, a, a lot of people live, but I've noticed it particularly in myself that there is a real hesitation and there's a real, that there's a real risk often in letting go of the illusion that we're in control, of recognizing and truly allowing yourself to know the fact that God is in control, that God has given all things to the Son, that the Son has been victorious on the cross, and allowing that knowledge to actually shape how we relate to our own lives, to no longer be saying, well, I have to amass stuff, I have to have everything sorted, I have to plan, I have to order things in just the way I like them. But actually say, okay, if God has that, then I'm no longer given something, I'm no longer offered something so that I might hold on to it, but instead I'm invited to, as Jesus did, given something so that I can give on to others. And actually recognize and embrace a lack of control to get to a point where one is happy with living, to some extent being helpless before God. But then Jesus says that when we begin to do that, when we begin to wash other people's feet, when we begin to allow our feet to be washed, that we enter into a way of life that is blessed. That is the way of life that it was always meant to be. That it will be difficult, that it will be hard, because we will be living in a way that is counter to the, to the world. That there will be times where we feel that we've been taken advantage of. There will be times where it hurts. But that through living as a community in this way, we will live a way, live into a life that is blessed. And we live in we live in that way, in such a way that wouldn't make sense to the world were it not for the idea of a crucified God. So that in some ways, in living in this way, in living in this way that is so difficult to understand apart from the cross, you in some quiet, gentle way send people looking to the cross. Perhaps that's a challenge for you. Are you living in a way that sends people looking to the cross? Are you living in a way that the cross makes sense of? Or are you living in a way that actually doesn't need the cross to make sense of it? Because on, on secular terms, on worldly terms, it already makes sense. That is a question that I have begun to even dare to ask over the last month or so. And it is proving really difficult. <laughs> in part because I see, actually, I see the direction of where, of where God will take me on the discipleship over the next, few, next decades of my life and how hard that is. But I do also see within that, that that quiet promise that it is a life that is blessed. So, we are asked to become more like Jesus. We are asked to expect him. We are asked to know what Jesus knows 
to know what Jesus knew. We are asked to do what Jesus did and trust him when it hurts, to trust him when it's hard. And we're asked to step into a way of life that is blessed and trust that in giving of ourselves, we will become who we are truly meant to be. Amen.